0: I think I've told you guys before that I, when I was growing up, I was a Boy Scout. You know, I learned the the the, the how to tie the knots, and I learned the Scout symbol, and and all these different things, and learned some good things. Uh, one of the things I had the opportunity to do as a Boy Scout was in eighth grade. I got to go to a uh, national Boy Scout jamboree in Lynchburg, Virginia. So way back on the other side of the country, a great trip. It was fun. I got to do this and. Before we went to the actual conference, we got to spend a couple of days in Washington, D.C. Now, outside of Yakima, I don't think I've been many places outside of Yakima at that point. And so I remember going to Washington, D.C., and there were these guys on the street corners all wearing these big trench coats. Maybe you guys have seen this, you know. And as you're walking by, they open up the trench, coat, trench coats, and inside there's like, Oakley sunglasses and and Rolex watches and, and 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 all sorts of things inside their trench coats, right? And I'm like, dude, these guys are sweet, you know? And so he's like, "Hey kid, hey kid." And I'm like, yeah, hey, what's up, man?" And he goes, "I got you a pair of Oakleys." Now, I was an ignorant little kid, but I knew Oakleys were cool, you know? And and, and he goes, "And look, I got I got a Rolex here." And I'm like, "Wow, dude, that's uh, that's I don't know what that is, but that's cool, you know?" And he goes, "Man, this is a $3,000 watch. He said, I'll make you a deal today. He said, I'll sell you one of these Rolexes for a hundred bucks. I'm like, wow, that's a great deal. I've only got a hundred bucks. And he goes, here, I'll sweeten the deal. He said, you buy a Rolex from me for a hundred dollars and I will give you three pairs of Oakley sunglasses for free. And I'm like, alright, that's like a $3,600 value. Like, like, dude, you're getting a, you know, I'm getting a steal on this, you know. And so, uh, you know, I come home from Yakima and, uh, you know, again, you got to remember my context. You know, I I had a single mom and she worked as a custodian. And so there was never really much money for us. And and in fact, for me to go on this trip, I had to work my tail off to earn the money and had to find a couple sponsors who would sponsor me just so I could go on the trip. And so I come back and I've got this big fancy Rolex on and these Oakleys. And it just kind of looked almost out of place. The funny thing about this watch, though, is, is, is this watch on the outside, man, that thing looked real. That looked legit. I mean, I looked, I looked the stuff with that $3,000 watch on my wrist, you know. But every, every week, you would lose like 10 minutes of time, you know. And so every week, you know, you'd lose more and more and more time. And it, and it sure looked legit. But underneath, there's no way that thing was real. There's no way that thing was actually what they said it was. If you uh, have been here the last couple of weeks, we've, we've taken a break from a sermon series that we've been in, in Gospel of Mark, to, to kind of deal with some Easter things. And so now we're going to jump back into the Gospel of Mark. And if you kind of remember where we've been in this sermon series, Jesus the King, um, throughout this book we've seen Jesus perform all sorts of miracles. Jesus has done all sorts of amazing, remarkable things. I mean, Jesus, he calmed an effectual hurricane. There was a hurricane on the sea, and Jesus, all he had to do was say, Be still, and it stopped. Jesus, we've seen him uh, cast out a legion of demons from a man. We've seen Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. We've seen Jesus heal countless people time and time and time again. And so Jesus, he's done all sorts of these amazing things. And because of these miracles that he's done, because of all these things, the crowds have come. The crowds have heard, hey, we've heard about this man. He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. He can do all sorts of of amazing things. And so the crowds want to come and they want to hear this Jesus guy. They want to see, hey, maybe this Jesus guy, maybe he will use some of his miracle mojo and put it on my life so I can experience some of his miracles in my own life. And so he's attracted all of these crowds. And as the crowds were there, we've got to remember Jesus said very clearly in Mark chapter 1 about the reason why he came. He didn't come to perform these miracles. His goal wasn't to make everybody happy and healthy and wealthy. Now Jesus said very clearly in in, in chapter 1 that his mission, his goal, his purpose was to preach and teach about the gospel of God. And then to fulfill the gospel by giving his life as a ransom and as a sacrifice for sin. He says, all these miracles, this isn't what I'm about. I don't want to be known as a miracle worker. I am the Savior. And so throughout these chapters, even as the crowds have have enamored with Jesus and, and come to want to witness his miracles, Jesus has continued... To have a rub with the religious leaders of the day. Because his message of of grace, his message flies in the face of what those religious leaders had been teaching the people. They had taught the people that if you're going to be a godly person, then you've got to follow the list. You've got to look the part. You've got to do these certain things in order for you to be a godly person. And so Jesus has, has, has taught against those things and has really become the target of their oppression. And so today in in Mark chapter 7, which is where we are today, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Mark chapter 7, if you need a Bible, slip a hand up. Uh, We've got a Mariner's fan in the back that would love to be able to come and put one of those in your hand. Um, Here in in Mark chapter 7, Mark, the author of the book, is going to uh, relate an incident that Jesus had with these religious leaders about how they were disagreeing over uh, the cleanliness laws. Disagreeing over a dietary laws. They were disagreeing over regulations that had to do with ritual purity. On, on what makes us pure and right before God. See, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they had turned God's word into a list of rules that had to be kept. Into a list of traditions that if you are going to be right with God, you've got to follow all of these traditions and all of these rules. And you've got to do more of looking the part of being a godly person, than actually having a real relationship with God. In essence, what they wanted is they wanted people to look like that fancy Rolex. They wanted them to look like they were that $3,000 Rolex, but never really concerned about what's inside, what's underneath. So before we read, would you uh, just join me in prayer? God, we want to thank you for the opportunity to uh, be here and worship you today. And God, I know that there's many motivations for people to be in church, Uh, whether they feel guilty for something they've done, whether they're trying to turn a new leaf, whether they're trying just to be a better person. Uh, But God, I pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you want from us. Now, God, you aren't looking for this outward behavior modification. You aren't looking for us to look the part. But God, what you want is our hearts to be drawn to you completely. God, I pray as we open up your word, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray that you would help us to understand the words that you are trying to teach us today. God, this isn't a pastor's opinion. This is your word being clearly uh, taught today, God. I pray that you would help us to understand, that you would draw us to you today, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. So let's go ahead and read the first couple of verses, starting in, in, starting in chapter 7, verse 1. And it says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from a marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him and said, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? See here, here. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, they are questioning Jesus about this idea of some ceremonial hand cleansing, hand washing that was required for Jews before they would eat. They're asking him and saying, hey Jesus, why are you and why are your your disciples, why are they disregarding this teaching that we have taught? Why are they disregarding and doing something contrary to what the religious leaders say is to be expected? So here's the deal with these hand-washing rules. See, the Pharisees, several hundred years before Jesus had come, they had decided to create uh, some sort of tradition, some, a bunch of traditions that they, the intent behind these traditions was to put in a, a fence around the law of God. These traditions, they thought, by building this fence around the law, would protect God's holy word and would help people to, to keep God's word. So they made these traditions, they made these rules that say, if you're going to keep God's holy word, this is how it has to be done. And the the, the the idea behind it probably began good enough. The intention behind it was good. It wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But what happened is soon these traditions turned rather absurd and extraordinary. For example... They had a long list of rules on how to keep the Sabbath day holy. On what you were supposed to do to observe the Sabbath. And so, here's just a few of the traditions that they had written regarding the Sabbath. They said, first and foremost, you could not look into a mirror on the Sabbath. Because if you looked in a mirror, you might see a gray hair. And if you see gray hair, chances are you're going to want to pluck that gray hair. And that's considered working on the Sabbath. So you weren't allowed to look into a mirror. Another tradition was that you weren't allowed to carry a handkerchief. You could wear a handkerchief, but you could not carry it. So, for example, my wife and I, we've got four boys that play on four different baseball teams right now. So we're outside a lot. I mean, it's crazy how much baseball we have going on in our family. But when we're outside in the springtime, you know, the wind blows, and the pollen's all around, and and my seasonal allergies start to, to act up. And so if it was a Sabbath and I was upstairs and I decided I want to go downstairs into my house, I would have to take my handkerchief, tie it around my neck, and then I could walk downstairs. Then I would have to untie the handkerchief just to blow my nose. I mean, this this is the way that tradition had been manipulated. Another example was the Pharisees. They sat and had a debate. They said, if there's a man with a wooden leg... There's a man with a wooden leg. He lost his leg and he's got a wooden uh, prosthetic. If there's a fire in his house, is it legal for him to carry that wooden leg out of the house or not? You know, and so these were some of the traditions. You're like, really? Yes, of course carry your leg. But no, for them it was, no, we're going to have a debate about it to see whether or not we think that is working on the Sabbath or not. The Bible clearly says to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. The Bible never says anything about carrying a handkerchief or carrying a wooden leg. So over time, these traditions became rather outrageous and rather silly. Another major area of these uh, traditions that the scribes and Pharisees had put together was regarding this this cleanliness and the the ritual washing, which is a specific issue that Jesus is dealing here in in Mark chapter 7 with these Pharisees. The original command virtue. The, the original command dealing with ritual washing came from Exodus uh, where uh, God's word says that the, the priests, before they eat, they're supposed to do this ritual washing of their hands. So the priests are supposed to wash their hands in order to eat. But... Over time, these rules and traditions became changed to the fact that all religious Jews began to accept this. And 200 years before Jesus was actually born, this was a custom. That if you were going to be a religious Jew, if you were going to be right with God, this is something you had to observe. This tradition became such a huge issue in their day that there are stories of of, of of rabbis or teachers in the synagogues who got excommunicated from their churches because they failed to wash their hands. There's, there's another story of, of a rabbi who was put into prison for whatever reason. And, and, and in prison, he was given his rations of food and water every day. And this rabbi almost, almost died because every day when he got that water, instead of drinking the water, he would use it to wash his hands so he could have that ceremonial cleanliness before he ate whatever they gave him to eat. So these Pharisees, these religious leaders of the day, what they claimed is that they were just trying to do what was uh, trying to be devout. They were trying to be holy. They were trying to show, hey, this is how it's done. See, but what they had done is they had taken what God said and they, they turn it into a list of outward rules, of things to show others that they are righteous, that they are holy, that they are, 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 are godly. But really, they have no reflection of what's going on inside of their heart. See, there's, there's a danger. There's a danger for us when we build our faith on traditions or on outward behavior modifications. This is a danger to us. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, their desire was to see behavior modification. They, they they wanted to see people looking and acting like they are 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 righteous and holy. But the problem is this never ever begins to change their hearts. It can never get inside of them. They look great on the outside, but inside in their heart, it's far from legitimate. Now don't judge them. Be cautious right now, don't to judge them, because we still do that same thing. We still have this idea of, of when we say somebody's a Christian, we have this idea, well, this is what a Christian is. A Christian does this. They, they, they don't say words like this. They, they, they don't go places like this. They, 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 only, uh, they, they only do whatever it is. They don't watch shows like this. And we have these lists of, the, if you're going to be a good and godly Christian, I mean, I could ask you, and you guys would all say, well, yeah, I know what a Christian is. They, they do these sorts of things. And we talk about the outward appearance of what they, they do. One of the things that churches have done for a long time um, is, is is dealing with, with, with dressing a certain way. I mean, there's this tradition in the church, uh, and in fact, the church that I got saved at, the church that I first came to as a Christian, had this tradition that if you're going to go to church, you're going to dress up. You're going to wear your Sunday best and, and, and so this becomes the tradition that people, if you're going to be godly, you're going to come and you're going to wear a dress if you're a woman. And if you're a man, you've got to have, have a suit and tie. And if not a suit, you better have a tie on because that's what it means for us to be godly. And that's how we show how godly and how righteous we really are. And, and I had this idea that was ingrained in me that basically every Sunday I'm going to grab a tie and I'm going to look the part. Now, it's not necessarily a sinful thing for us to dress up for church. I mean, I I wore a tie, for goodness sakes, last week. Man, that thing made me look good, you know? So, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing that we're talking about. But, But let's be honest. There's no command in Scripture that says you have to dress up to go to church on Sunday. The command is to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I never see anything about saying I have to wear a tie to church. And so if I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to say that today, for the first time in my life as a pastor, I am preaching in a sweatshirt. I'm preaching in a t-shirt. And darn it, I'm doing it as a reminder to myself that it's not about the outward appearance. It's not about how I look that details what's going on and what makes me a believer. It's not not about the outward appearance. It's about what's going on inside of me. So darn it, I'm wearing a t-shirt. I'm wearing tennis shoes for the first time. This is crazy. We're this, I'm not looking to offend anybody here, but I want to make the point and remind myself that these traditions don't necessarily have to do any anything with what's inside of a heart. They don't reveal what's deep down inside of us. And so what happens is churches, and, and, and we put these outward signs or, or, or traditions uh, as expectations for people that if you're going to come and be a part of this church, if you're going to grow in God, these are the things that you have to do. These are the things uh, that, that you have to uh, uh, put on yourself in order for, for you to be a godly person. And what becomes is, is when you have new people, this becomes a burden. A burden that we put on, on each other. A burden that we put on new people. And this is a burden that is so unfair because it's, un, uh, there, it's unrealistic to think people can carry all of these burdens on their own. And what happens then is instead of pursuing a heart change for God, instead of pursuing our heart to get our heart in line with God, instead what happens is people begin to try to fill our religious expectations. They try and look the part And ultimately, they miss what God is really after. God's not seeking behavior modification. He's not seeking that we become good people. What God wants is he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. So the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they make this accusation before Jesus. They say, your disciples, they are not fulfilling the traditions and the rules that have been set about what it means to be godly, about what it means to be a good Jew. And the religious leaders took offense at that. So how's Jesus going to respond? He responds in verse 6. And it says, And he said to them, Well, did I say a prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the, to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, uh, whatever you, oh, excuse me, if. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is giving to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. See, Jesus wastes absolutely no time, no time in his response. He knows what these religious leaders are all about. And he goes straight to the heart of the matter. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 that says, Your, your, your honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. He's saying, you you do all the right things. You've done all the right things. You've told others about God's unfailing love for you and about how great God is. But he's saying, there's no truth behind it. You don't believe what you are saying. You don't believe what you are doing. He's saying, they never really felt the things that they were saying. That they were just going through the motions of what they were supposed to do. It wasn't true to what their heart was really inclined to believe. And so Jesus is saying is that your faith is built. He's saying your faith is built on these traditions, uh, upon these external outward behavior modifications. And he says when, when your faith is built on these things, when your faith is built on tradition, what happens is you begin to confuse man's word with God's word. You begin to blur the line and confuse man's word with God's word. See, men, religious leaders, they begin to take away from God's word, or they begin to add to it. They begin to say, hey, well, that's not what God means. This is what it means. Or they begin to add to it and say, well, well, you need to add this into it for you to understand. And soon, people begin to mistake the religious rules and the traditions created by the commandments of men as being God's commands themselves. And that leads to people living in lip service to God. Their hearts aren't in it. They're just trying to, to, to do what they know, what they believe to be expected. They're trying to show that they are godly people. The example that Jesus gives is dealing with, with the commandment that every Jew would have known to honor your father and mother. This was a, Jew, this was a commandment that, that everybody would have known. Honor your father and mother. And this meant, even in their old age, that you have to take care of them physically. And even financially, you may have to take care of your parents. Kids, think about that now before they get old. Okay? But this was something that they would have understood. But the religious tradition of that day, they offered a work around to this. They offered a work around to it. They said if 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 your, your resources are considered a korban, a Corbin, if they're offered to God as a sacrifice to God. Then, then if you offer all of your resources and all of your money to God, then you don't have to take care of your parents because, you know, that, 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 that sacrifice you're making to God is, is more important than honoring your parents. And so the religious leaders created this workaround where you could get out of having to take care of your parents physically, financially, whatever other way, by saying everything I have belongs to God belongs to God anyways. But this was the workaround that they created. And so Jesus pointed out this this tradition, how it circumvented God's commands. On the outside, he's saying, you're looking and sounding holy. All of my resources belong to God. You know, I can't help you out, mom and dad. I'm just a holy and righteous person. But Jesus is saying, you're missing the whole point. You're, You're completely voiding what God's word originally has already told you to do, which is to honor your father and mother. So honestly, how much of our church lives are just like this? We say and we do the right things. I mean, I, I, mean, I mean, I love the chance. I love having the worship team up here. And, I, and, I, and it's great to be able to sing these worship songs, to sing these beautiful songs of praise and worship. But honestly, we should be feeling something for God during these songs. We should be having these, the, our emotions uh, stirred because of these words that we're singing to God. But how many times do we just sing, sing along? Go through the motions because, you know, it's so much easier. You know, this is not what God is after. This is not what God is. God doesn't want behavior modification. He doesn't want us to clench our fists and try harder to look the part of what it means to be a good and godly person. That's a burden and a weight that is impossible for us to bear. See, God is not seeking behavior modification. God is, is, is after, God is seeking worshipers. That's what God wants. God wants worshipers. People who orient their entire lives around him because they delight in him. And they actually desire him. Not what he offers, not his stuff, but they desire God himself. See very clearly in John chapter 4. John chapter 4 it says the hour is coming and now is and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth God is looking for worshipers he's not looking for our behavior modification he's not looking for us to be good people he's not looking for for us to fake it he's not looking for for hypocrites he wants Worshippers, the Pharisees, religious leaders, they have missed this. And they thought all God wants is clean hands. That's what God wants. God wants clean hands. They thought that God wanted them to do the rituals correctly. They thought God wanted uh, these demonstrations of, of how holy they are instead of really acclimating their hearts to him. Because that's what God wants. He wants our hearts to be acclimated completely to him. I mean, I mean, we get this in our own lives. We get this. I mean, nobody wants people we love. Nobody wants people to do things for us because they're supposed to do it, because it's an obligation. I mean, we want people to, to do things for us out of love. For example, this year, my wife and I, we're going to celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary. 14 years. We met in first grade, got married in second grade, and here we are. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, we are going to celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary, and it's going to be a fun, fun time. But let's just say, for example, Let's say, for example, come December, our anniversary, uh, I get everything arranged for a weekend away. You know, I get a, I get a babysitter for the kids. I, I get travel accommodations arranged. Maybe we go up to Leavenworth or someplace like that. And we go there, and we go, and we eat all the nice restaurants. And, and there's a little coffee shop in, in, in Leavenworth, and we go, and we drink coffee together. And then we go to the bookstore, and we, we look at all the books. And then we go to all the other stores, and we try on dresses she tries on dresses. I just, you know, stand outside, and, and we go, we, we do all the shopping, and we do, we do anything that she wants to do, okay? At the end of the weekend, she says to me, she says, Kevin, what'd you do this for? Why did you do all of this? Now, there's a couple ways I could respond. I could respond to her, and I could say, because I love you, because I'm crazy about you, because it's a joy to do these things with you. If I said that, man, That's like the best thing for me to do. There's like, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. But imagine, imagine if I responded like this. Imagine if I said, because it's what I'm supposed to do. Because I don't want you to be mad at me. Can you imagine how devastated she would be? Can you imagine how long of a walk it would take for me to get back from Leavenworth back to Yakima? Because she would have kicked my butt on the side of the road. Can you imagine that, that whole weekend would have been ruined. It would mean nothing. Why? Because your actions, no matter how great the sacrifice, if they're not rooted in love, then the person you're doing them for, they're, they're pointless. They mean nothing. I could go through all the motions, but if I don't have my heart behind it, it means nothing to my wife. The same thing is true for God. He's not after people who just come to church who just try to do the right thing. He's not after your Bible reading. He's not after your good behavior. He's after your heart. He's after your heart, and he wants your heart to really desire him, to love him, to desire to, to be obedient to him. See, what God wants, and God wants to be your top priority. What God wants he, wants, he wants to be your iPhone. He wants to be your iPhone. Because what's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Gotta check Facebook. Gotta check Twitter. Gotta see what's happening. What's the last thing you do before you go to bed? Oh, Facebook, got to check and see what happened on whatever else. We check our phones hundreds of times a day. That's what God wants to be. He wants to be the first thing we think about when we wake up. He wants to be the last thing we think about when we go to bed. He wants to be the thing that we think about hundreds of times throughout the day. God wants to be your iPhone. That is hashtagable. You should write that down. That's good. That is preaching right there. God wants us to organize our entire life around him. He wants our love and a desire to be for him. So here, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He puts it in their face and says, you know, here's the problem. You honor me with your lips, but your heart isn't in it. Your heart doesn't believe the things that you say. So verse 14 picks up, and Jesus calls the crowds around him. And he begins to teach the people something very important. says in verse 14, it says, and he called the people to him, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going in him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, and sexual immorality, and theft, and murder, and adultery, and coveting, and wickedness, and deceit, and sensuality, and envy, and slander, and pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, Jesus, he's not teaching a nice, loving parable here. This is about as straightforward as it can be. He's saying, I agree with you Pharisees on one point. I agree with the Pharisees on one point, that all of us, that entire crowd, every one of us in here today, every human that has ever lived, he says, I agree with you on one idea, and that is the fact that we are all unclean. We are all defiled and unclean before God. Every one of us. But Jesus says this. Jesus says, we aren't defiled and unclean because we haven't washed our hands. He says, no, we're unclean because of our hearts. It's not the external actions that make us unclean before God. It's our hearts. It's not the things that we do. It's not the outpouring, the things we say, the things we do with our hands that make us unclean. It's what happens inside of our hearts. See, the Pharisees, they have pursued religion. They have pursued behavior modification. They believe that they can fix their problem by washing their hands, by being a better person. But here's what Jesus it's pointing out, our problem with God is not that we mess up from time to time. It's our problem is not that we're basically good people who occasionally make mistakes. Our problem with God is that we are messed up people. Every one of us, we are messed up people. We're, we're bad people bent towards sin and bent towards rebellion against God. I don't care how you psychologize it. I mean, you can say any sort of way. You can say, well, well, I, have, I just have a complex. Well, maybe my parents didn't love me enough. Well, well, I'm a victim. Well, well, I have self-esteem issues. It doesn't matter how you psychologize it. All those things may be true for you. But it doesn't change the fact that regardless of all of those external circumstances, deep down, you and I, we are bad people. Our hearts are always bent towards sin and rebellion. Our heart, our heart becomes and is the control seat of of our lives. It is the driver's seat of our lives. Everything in our life comes out of our heart. Our emotions, our actions, our will, they all come from our hearts. Jesus says very clearly, our heart is where all of our evil thoughts come from. Where our sexual immorality... Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things, they aren't just external actions. They start in our hearts. Jeremiah, the prophet, said in in chapter 17, he said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? See, on most days, we don't see ourselves in that light. We don't see ourselves as as, as as bad people. We don't see our hearts as being desperately wicked. We believe that our sin is manageable and, and that our sin problem can be fixed. If we just had the right techniques, if we just tried a little bit harder, we can overcome our sin problem and we can be better people if we just try a little bit harder, if we just we, we just had the right techniques to do it, we could do it. But you know, when I had that fake Rolex, it seems that every month I would roll those hands back, the clock hands back, so I could get the clock just right. And I would try and get everything just right so it would still run. But guess what? That watch was still a fake. It will always be a fake. It will always lose time. It will never work right. And you and I, you know, I, we believe that we would be different if our circumstances were different. We think, you know, if I, if I was in a different position, if I was in a different position, then I wouldn't have anxiety or fear or anger. If I, if I had more money, if I had more money, if I, if I, if I had a better spouse, if I, if I had a better church, then I wouldn't be this way. I would be different if my outward circumstances were changed, then I could be a better person and I could be that right kind of person. And so we spend most of our time reshuffling our circumstances, hoping to get better results. You can change cities. You can change jobs. You can change houses. You can change uh, churches. But all that is doing is rolling back the, the, the hands of the clock. Just rolling back the hands of the clock. You will still be you. Sure, maybe for a season, sin begins to fade and we feel better. But eventually, it comes back. Because the heart is the problem, not the circumstance. Our heart is the problem. What's funny is this is where Mark stops. Mark stops right here. Jesus teaches and says we're all evil. We all have evil hearts. And this is when Jesus drops the mic and walks off stage, exit stage left. He doesn't offer them any solution. That's all Jesus has to say. And and the crowd, the disciples, you can imagine them just sitting there waiting for Jesus to give them an instruction on what are we supposed to do, Jesus? I mean, we're waiting for a a five-step plan on how to fix this problem. And Jesus doesn't offer any solution. Jesus doesn't offer them a solution then because Jesus is on his way to become the solution. He becomes the solution in Mark chapter 15 when Jesus goes to the cross and he dies for our sins. See, we have to have our hearts changed. We have to have our hearts changed. And there's no traditions. There's no rules. There's no behavior modification. Uh, There's nothing uh, that we can do, even if we try really hard, that can change our hearts. There's nothing that we can do to change our hearts. Jesus, through the cross, through the cross, he provides the way for our hearts to be made new so that the Holy Spirit can give us new desires that fill up the place of those uh, evil of our old hearts. This is what we call the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel to make us new, to change our hearts, to give us new desires, to refill all those evil things with with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Above such, there is no law. See, the power of the gospel is the only thing that can make our hearts new. It's the power of the gospel through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to make us better rule followers. He came to make us new. We don't need a five-step plan. We need the gospel. We need Jesus' death and resurrection for us. This is why This is why God shows us our sin. This is why when God shows us our sin, his command to us is simply to repent. He says to repent, to go to God and confess to him in prayer that we cannot fix ourselves, to acknowledge that only Jesus can fix us. But what do we mostly do? We don't spend our time repenting over sin. We spend our time lamenting over it feeling sorry for ourselves, or trying to forget our sin. What we're trying to do is trying to be just like the Pharisees. We believe that it's some sort of external action about lamenting our sin or forgetting our sin that will fix the problem. But we need to recognize that it's not an external action that is needed. Rather, we need to acknowledge, we need to acknowledge our inability to fix ourselves. We need to repent, confess our need for Jesus because only in the power of the gospel that we are made free. Would you pray with me? God some of these things are so almost contrary to what we have grown up believing. God we've heard forever that that if we're going to be right with you that we've got to be a good person, that we've got to to orient our lives and 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 clean ourselves up. But God, that's not what your word says. Your word says that no matter how hard we try, we will always have that dirty heart. We will always be bent towards sin. That God, the way that we become righteous, the way that we become uh, in right standing before you is, is through the power of the gospel. Through repenting of our sins, through seeking your presence in our lives. God, this is so much harder to do. It's so much easier if we just had a list of things that do this and this and this and everything will be great. But God, how many, of us, how many of us have tried those lists? How many of us have tried to, to put meaning into our lives, to, to begin to, to make things feel better, but God, we find those things are empty because God is only the gospel. It is only coming into a relationship with you, acknowledging our sinfulness and trusting you for growth that we see any of that righteousness in our lives. God, I think about us as a church. I think about this campaign that we have this year. Each one, reach one. That God, we would take the gospel message and we would take it to those around us. That we would invite people into a relationship with you. God, I pray that we would be clear on what that really means. We're not calling people to religion, to tradition, to looking the part. God, we're calling them to a heart change with you. That God, you would would renew their hearts. That you would make them new. God, I pray right now, today, I pray, God, that you would help us to understand our need for the gospel. That God, as is, is most of us are in here today because we want to be closer to you, that God, the way we get closer to you is not through trying harder. It's through submitting to that relationship and saying, God, I need you. God, I can't do it on my own. God, I drop the ball every time. It doesn't matter my behavior modification. It matters my heart. And having my heart made right with you. God, I pray that that would be our prayer for every one of us. That God, as we sit and we hear God's word today, that we would realize this isn't about trying harder. This is about us opening our hearts and saying, God, I need your presence right here and right now. And as we have the opportunity to respond to you through worship, as we have the opportunity to listen to the worship team sing us and lead us in a couple of worship songs, that God, our hearts would be open to be just responding to you. To say, God, I don't want to try harder. God, I can't try any harder. God, I just need your presence. I need your love to fill me. I need you, God, to make my heart new. Jesus, I pray for your presence with us as we respond to your word now. I ask for your power Ask for your love to fill our hearts, that you would continue to make us new. Jesus, I ask this in your name.